This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Health and Living with me, Lim Su An. For many parents of children with rare diseases, the journey from discovering their child's symptoms to finding a definite diagnosis is often long and arduous. Parents often go from doctor to doctor to figure out what is happening to their child. And because of the nature of these diseases, most doctors aren't able to quickly pick up on the nature of the disease. But what if we can introduce screening policies to help detect some of these cases much, much earlier, sometimes even before the child show symptoms. Ahead of Rare Disease Day, which is observed this year on the 29th of February, I'll be speaking to consultant paediatrician and clinical geneticist Professor Dr. Tong Miao Kyung and genetic counsellor Yun Suki for their thoughts. Thank you both for joining me today. Um, Prof, I'll start with you. You often have first-hand observation of the diagnostic odyssey that parents of children with rare diseases go through. Why does this happen? You know, What are the barriers that you see to early detection of rare diseases? Yeah, thank you, Sven, uh, for the question. Now, the question about why does it happen is often the first question most parents ask. And uh, usually there's a sense of bewilderment. Uh, and then there's always a searching for answers. They go online, they talk to family members and friends. And very often there's a grief reaction, for example, anger, depression, a sense of bargaining and so on. But you know, the, the issue about why does it happen usually reflect uh, the, the sort of lack of understanding about uh, biology uh, from a technical point of view. Uh, many of these rare conditions happen in nature uh, and it can happen to a variety of causes. For example, uh, studies have shown that up to 80% are genetically linked uh, and about 20% are still environmental linked. Um, but generally, uh, you know, we, we need to do very careful assessment of each and every patient on a case-by-case basis so that we can uh, make a very accurate diagnosis. Nothing is more important than having an accurate diagnosis because everything else will follow uh, uh, with, the, with the diagnosis of a rare disease. Regarding the barriers for early detection, again, uh, this is uh, uh, multifactorial. I think the first reason will be generally there's a very low level of awareness, uh, particularly, you know, even amongst uh, healthcare professionals uh, and of course members of the public uh, with the low health literacy uh, in this country, generally uh, a lot of these uh, rare conditions are usually misunderstood or they are ignored. Uh, so that led to a very early, uh, sorry, led to a very late detection of this condition. The other reason that uh, people often uh, delayed is because they felt that, oh, it's probably an unimportant uh, complaint, you know, and usually the complaints are very subtle at the beginning. For example, a child who may have a bit of slowness in learning Mm. or some uh, facial features they might attribute to, you know, uh, familiar trait. Uh, And so, very often, uh, these are generally put aside until the child is quite old. Uh, another reason may be access are difficult. So in many places in Malaysia, uh, for example, if you live in rural areas in East Malaysia, uh, Sabah, Sarawak, uh, and so on, 
uh, access to expertise that can make a diagnosis of rare disease are usually quite challenging. And of course, uh, the to me, the, the last point is usually brings back to a common thread that we're going to talk about is about equity in the healthcare system. Generally, uh, equity in healthcare finds itself very hard to be applied for rare disease because uh, the cost of uh, making an accurate diagnosis, for example, a genetic test, are quite unaffordable to majority of the population. Uh, and there are many other issues uh, related to that. Mm. Of the more than 7,000 types of rare diseases that we have identified, Prof, you know, only 5% um, have some sort of treatment or cure for it, right? So why is it still important for early diagnosis of rare diseases to happen? What impact does it have on the child's quality of life? Yeah, this is another very important misconception that, you know, uh, a person's value of a patient is measured by the availability of a specific drug treatment, like in this case, the 5%. I look at it from another way. Every life is precious, right? Every person uh, is unique. And therefore, uh, you know, if there is uh, illness that affected a person, you can also treat them uh, for their other symptoms, for their other complications they may have. Uh, and it's not necessary that uh, it is uh, something that is curative. So, for example, we have examples of this all the time. Uh, a person who has hypertension mm-hmm. will not be cured because hypertensive is a condition that is essentially controlled by taking medication uh, and uh, making sure there's no complication. So, for many of these rare diseases which have no specific therapy for cure, uh, you can still control symptoms. Uh, you can reduce severity of the uh, complications, for example. And therefore, uh, even though they don't have a treatment per se, uh, for the healthcare system, there's still a lot that we can do to make life uh, better for this group of patients. Mm. Turning to you, Suki, what are the screening options that are currently available to parents either um, during pre- uh, before or right after their baby is born um, when we talk about the Malaysian landscape here? Um, so in the Malaysian landscape um, for expecting parents, um, there are certain tests they can do, um, prenatal uh, screening per se, and like Prof said, it's again maybe an equity question. So it is available, but who can actually access it? You know, it's mainly in the private setting. You can get some of it in the government setting as well, but uh, also quite limited to what can be done, mm. right? So uh, again, in terms of range of testing and screening, um, we do get it in the country. Some can be done. Uh, in labs locally, uh, we have got very good established testing labs abroad as well. Um, but cost is always an issue. And uh, also, we do try and encourage um, those who are thinking of doing such screening tests to actually have ample genetic counselling before they choose to do such tests so that you know, they get all of the accurate information that can help in the decision-making. You know, you mentioned about the importance of genetic counsellors. Maybe you could share a bit for our listeners. What role do you play um, in this conversation about screening and diagnosis? 
All right. So we know that there are many types of genetic tests uh, when it comes to diagnosing and also for screening. And each test, you know, it tells us uh, different information. So um, whilst there is an increasing awareness among the public that there are more tests, more genetic tests that can be done for all sorts of things, um, but the understanding and the interpretation of the information that comes with the test is still lacking in a sense. And I think without the uh, proper information, sometimes there can be misinformation and mm -hmm. that leads to a wrong um, decision uh, when it comes to the medical decision. So the role of genetic counsellors is to do the mediation in, you know, in making sure that there's a correct interpretation and translation to, uh, of the genetic information that can be understood by patients in a way. So more in layman's term and also to rebuff some of the myths uh, that comes with the genetic test and well and some of the fears and the stigma. So all of these processes takes time and also the psychosocial uh, impact that comes with a genetic test. So we are all aware that there's still a lot of stigmatization when it comes to inherited conditions mm -hmm. in the and uh, you know with um, we can try and manage that and provide the psychosocial support for the family members and you know uh, those may eventually get a diagnosis that they are you know unfortunately is not something they would have wanted but uh, the bad news, how is it going to be taken? So that's where genetic counsellors are trained to provide that sort of psychosocial support as well. Alright, we'll go for a quick break and continue this discussion when we come back on the show with me today, our consultant paediatrician and clinical geneticist, Professor Dr. Tong Miao Kyung and genetic counsellor Yun Suk Yi, diving into the need for expanded newborn screening for rare diseases in Malaysia. Keep it here on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su and We are talking about the need for expanded newborn screening for rare diseases in Malaysia and weighing in on today's discussion, our consultant paediatrician and clinical geneticist, Professor Dr. Tong Miao Kyung and genetic counsellor Yun Suk Yi. Prof Tong, in previous interviews um, with us and also with other media publications, you've called for um, newborn screening to be expanded via the heel prick test. Um, could you explain how this test works and what types or perhaps how many types of rare diseases would be tested if we introduce something like this in Malaysia? Okay. Now, first of all, uh, we need to understand that uh, newborn screening is not a new concept. Mm -hmm. uh, it has been around for the last 60 years. Uh, in Malaysia, we have introduced newborn screening uh, run by Yushi, the Minister of Health, uh, both in the uh, hospitals and also in the clinic Kesihatan, and also in all the uh, uh, teaching hospitals and all the private uh, healthcare facilities, hospitals, all do newborn screening. And these are using cord blood screening. When the baby is born, Before, uh, after they cut the cord, they will collect some blood from the cord and they will send for these two tests, uh, we call them G6PD, uh, and the other one is uh, thyroid uh, stimulating hormone, TSH. Both of them uh, screen uh, using the cord blood, 
And both of them, are this, these conditions actually lead to very severe learning disability mm. if they are not detected early. Now, by extension, uh, the expanded newborn screening have the same principle. Uh, that means, uh, you know, they would collect uh, samples, but instead of collecting it from the cord blood, uh, they will need to collect it from a baby's heel prick. Now, let me just spend a couple of minutes uh, if, uh, to explain the difference. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason why uh, heel prick is used for this expanded newborn screening is because we are actually screening for a, a rare group of conditions, what we call inherited metabolic diseases, which is basically disorders of uh, enzyme in our body. As you know, uh, enzymes are important uh, in the cells in the body to digest the food that we ate. So the food that we ate are usually broken down into three big groups of uh, food, usually uh, either protein, carbohydrates, and fat. Now, it's a similar for the milk that the uh, breastfeeding, breast milk, and infant formula. Uh, this milk consists of three components as well as, you know, protein, uh, carbohydrate, and fats. And we need the enzymes in the baby's uh, cell to work to make sure they can digest, process this uh, food, and so that they can use it to make uh, body tissue parts, uh, build bones, and so on, and also produce energy. Now, what happens is if there's short of one enzyme in this whole process, you can imagine that the factory, uh, there, there, there is basically a stoppage of the factory. So you will lead to accumulation of uh, the substrate, yeah, the, the 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 raw material, and this will lead to a toxic effect. At the same time, uh, the factory line got cut off, so there is stoppage of the production of whatever tissue that you are required mm -hmm. for the cell to work. So two effects have occurred, and this would lead to what we call a medical crisis, and these crises are very severe usually occurring about five days after the baby is born. And it will consist uh, of a presentation like a child collapsing, having difficulty in breathing, become comatose, or they have seizures and so on. And usually by the time they present in that manner, uh, they will be sent straight to an ICU. But unfortunately, the damage is very likely to have occurred in the developing brain of the baby or newborn baby. Mm -hmm. And subsequently, if the patient survived that trauma, that event, they might survive with a severe handicap, for example, a severe learning disability, uh, particularly if they come late. So you can see the purpose of this whole screening is to pick up that inherited metabolic disease or the enzyme disorder before the patient uh, ends up with a crisis. So this is the purpose of all screening program, which is mainly to preempt a very severe medical condition from happening. And in this case, a uh, condition that uh, uh, impacts yeah, uh, on the baby's uh, de developing brain. Now, most parents are aware that there is a newborn screening program because they, they will know that, uh, you know, if you look at all the baby book, uh, they will have been chopped. G6PD and TSH normal, mm -hmm. you know, uh, for those who are 
listeners who are out there, you can go and check the baby's book yourself and you can actually see that that's been done. So that's a, a newborn screening program already going on in this country for many, many years. Now, what we are proposing is not something new, not an extra thing. It's just an extension or expanded, trying to add in at least 30 to 50 conditions that are prevalent in this country. Uh, and when I say prevalent, it means that it is common enough uh, so that uh, we can pick it up early. And the best thing about this picking up early is we can treat them early. So for example, if they lack enzyme to digest a protein, for example, a certain protein, mm -hmm. then what we can do after we have screened the baby, we will then do a specific targeted genetic test and we will identify that specific enzyme and then we will introduce a special milk formula that can be digested by the baby who has uh, the missing enzyme. So this is, in a nutshell, uh, what's the expanded newborn screening is all about. Yeah, So you can see that this whole process will require uh, a lot of uh, uh, participation from the government, uh, particularly the public health, but we also need the input from all the uh, dietitian, the geneticists, the counsellors, social workers, and the whole public health system uh, will need to be revamped to look after this new part of the uh, program. And hence, uh, there is this reluctance to uh, embark on it because mm -hmm. it will certainly involve uh, many changes that will be required, particularly in terms of funding, mm -hmm. in terms of laboratory services, in terms of the food and nutritional support, in terms of having recognition for genetic counsellors. And of course, we need to have a core expertise in geneticists and metabolic physicians who can do this job. But the, the, the key word here is the return on investment is huge because you are saving at least 200 100 to 200 newborn babies a year from a catastrophic disorder, which would otherwise lead them to severe learning disability. And imagine the cost you can save in not, you know, uh, in terms of having a person to do well under those circumstances and be a good citizen, a productive citizen, and many other uh, associated issues related to having a child who's disabled. Mm. Suki, so, you clearly see the impact of the lack of genetic counsellors in the country, right? And like Prof said, you know, to introduce something like this, it would require a lot of human resources to be introduced. But what is the concern if we don't have the manpower to help parents understand this information if we introduce expanded newborn screening? Uh, so definitely the goal is still to train enough genetic counsellors to uh, provide for our population. So that will always be the goal and we are still uh, pushing for it. We are training and that is why um, five years back we have established our local Masters in Genetic Counselling course and every year it will have um, newly trained genetic counsellors. So at the same time, so because this is uh, such a multidiscipline uh, um, requirement, as Prof has said, yeah, to support uh, such a program. So there's going to be a lot of upskilling of um, the other non-genetics clinicians as well. So we need to have the other non-genetics clinicians to have the training to understand the genetic 
test reports and so on. And the genetic counsellors will then play the central role to make sure that there is ample support for all of these other um, clinicians and nurses and so on. So we, um, whilst building up capacity, we want to make sure that there is at least an infrastructure of genetic counsellors throughout the country to provide that uh, base support to the clinicians first, apart from providing the support directly to patients. So that is an infrastructure that we are trying to get, and is why there's a lot of uh, ongoing discussions with the Ministry of Health um, for registration, certification of um, individuals, genetic trained genetic counsellors to provide this infrastructure. But at the same time, uh, we also work with um, the different clinicians to make sure that they are being upskilled in terms of the genetics component. Mm. Prof, turning back to you, you know, other countries have introduced this hill prick test for years, in some cases decades. I understand that um, some of our neighbours here in Southeast Asia also have introduced these expanded newborn screening. You mentioned earlier about the return of investment. I guess, could you elaborate more? What have you seen in terms of the effectiveness? What, have, what can we see from other countries in terms of that return of investment that we see in terms of better quality of life for these children? Yes, um, Malaysia and Singapore, in fact, uh, in the 1970s, pioneered some of this uh, newborn screening program and has been very successful. And uh, basically, uh, we have kept to the same uh, processes. Uh, Singapore, for example, has moved ahead. They have already introduced expanded newborn screening uh, nearly 20 years ago. And in fact, uh, you know, you'll be surprised to hear that Many of our regional neighbours, like the Philippines, uh, have a, a law that says that expanded newborn screening is a requirement. Uh, Indonesia, Thailand, uh, Vietnam, in fact, uh, all have started some form of expanded newborn screening program. And it won't be surprising in the next five years, all these countries would have all taken Malaysia mm -hmm. uh, by having a nationwide uh, expanded newborn screening program uh, that uh, that is uh, going on unless uh, Malaysia does something about this to uh, make this change. Now, if you look at Malaysia itself, uh, if you look at the 2023 health white paper, uh, and it clearly stated if you look at uh, the content that the Malaysian infant mortality rate, and that includes the under five uh, death in children has remained static for the last 20 odd years or so. Mm -hmm. Now, this is an indication that, you know, childhood uh, death has actually remained the same. And a large part of it, if you break, look at the breakdown, are due to what they call uh, congenital conditions. And this include birth defects, inherited diseases, and so on. Now, a large part of it can be reduced of, you know, if we take the, the steps now to screen for this uh, newborn cohort yeah, and look for all these uh, uh, important congenital condition, inherited condition, so that they can be treated early uh, and we can actually save a lot of these babies and it will make a difference in terms of our under five deaths, which has been sadly... Uh, in a way, neglected, yeah, in my view, uh, over the years, that so much so that we have not 
uh, achieve any re uh, meaningful reduction as uh, stated in the white paper uh, report. So, uh, to really uh, give up to, you know, SDG, for example, the sustain Sustainable Development Goals, uh, which is to reduce, you know, the percentage of infant mortality uh, at a certain pace and the rate by 2030, we really, uh, again, uh, for those who are responsible uh, of the healthcare system, to really look at our infant mortality rate and our under five deaths uh, and to consider this expanded newborn screening program as a priority. Uh, unless we do something about it, uh, the same, uh, uh, what they call data, will show up uh, by 2030 that, you know, the, the child death due to congenital or inherited conditions such as uh, metabolic disease will continue to, to be the main cause of death. Mm. Earlier, you mentioned funding, Prof, that clearly this will require a lot of financial resources to go into funds. But, but how much financial resources, you know? I mean, is there sort of a gradient where we just start by introducing a bit first and then slowly we expand it more and more? Yes. Now, for most of these uh, nationwide projects, uh, we would definitely need to start small and and we need to have some kind of pilot, for example, to mm. make sure that we iron out all the uh, problems and unforeseen uh, situations, for example. And this has been, uh, in fact, there's a pilot study that was done for expanded newborn screening by Ministry of Health in 2006. Mm. Uh, however, it has not uh, been taken up uh, as a nationwide uh, project. Uh, and I understand that it may be due to related uh, shortage of funds at the time. However, I think it has been now more than 15 years since that study has been done. And in fact, uh, in a public hospital like University of Malay Medical Center, we also undertake the process of uh, new expanded newborn screening in babies born in uh, UMMC, hoping to that we can show that uh, proof of concept that uh, expanded newborn screening can be done in a public hospital, mm. even though we have no choice but to charge the patient a minimal amount for the test. And even so, uh, up to 40, 50% uh, of parents were willing to uh, pay for the test because, you know, following the educational program and awareness program, most parents are willing to pay because they felt that uh, that is an important test that will help the children. Mm. So you can see that, you know, overall in terms of cost, uh, it will be hard to quantify at this stage. However, there are many health technology assessment done overseas and uh, HGA are usually done for any new procedures that are introduced in the health system. And almost all of them showed uh, a good outcome, uh, the Kali, uh, the quality of life, uh, as well as uh, cost effectiveness have shown that it is much better to have an expanded newborn screening program for a selected group of conditions that are prevalent in the country, for example. Mm. So I think definitely uh, all the evidence point to the fact that we definitely need this uh, expanded newborn screening program.
All right, we have to go for another quick break. On the show with me today are consultant pediatrician and clinical geneticist, Professor Dr. Dong Myo Kyung and genetic counsellor Yoon Suk Yi on the benefits of and need for expanded newborn screening for rare diseases in Malaysia. We'll be right back after a few messages on BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su. And we are talking about expanding newborn screening for rare diseases in Malaysia ahead of Rare Disease Day, which is observed annually on the last day of February. And this year, that day is 29th of February. Now joining me to discuss this are consultant pediatrician and clinical geneticist, Professor Dr. Tong Myo Kyung and genetic counsellor, Yun Suki. Suki, I want to briefly touch on um, carrier screening as well, which is usually done before a couple decides to conceive to get pregnant, what role do you see carrier screening play um, to complement expanded newborn screening and how do you help couples through those results as well? Yep. So um, carrier screening um, can be done if, let's say, the couple already had the unfortunate experience in some way of um, uh, having a, uh, a diagnosis done and they want to prevent the same diagnosis in the next pregnancy. Um, but there are also um, carrier screening that can be done where in some families that they may suspect that, you know, they might uh, have something going on inherited-wise. So there are um, various reasons why a couple planning to have children may want to have um, carrier screening. So in some cases... Some even do this through, you know, direct-to-consumer testing, which mm -hmm. is a bit worrying because it's included in these uh, large, uh, you know, uh, big uh, screening tests for all sorts of things, and they include carrier screening in. And those are the ones that may come up with very unexpected results. And, uh, you know, which is something that the person doing the carrier screening as part of a larger genetic test uh, has not expected that sort of result. So um, depending on uh, who and why they want to have the carrier screening, then the counselling will be done appropriately, right? So the genetic counselling is meant to guide the parents who are planning to have a child on what to expect with these carrier screening, what sort of conditions will be tested, what sort of genes will be tested. And because... Um, the genetic transmission for each of these may not be exactly the same. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's why the management of the expectation is very important. So, um, and we, you know, uh, from the genetics uh, fraternity, we do view the direct-to-consumer testing, genetic testing quite strongly because uh, some of these carry screening are already included inside and then they come to us with the result, uh, and then we have to work out again um, what is going on. But the problem is when they come with the result, they have already been, you know, either misinterpreting the result or they have had a very big scare, and um, that's not the right pathway. So for all carrier screening, again, we do advocate that it has to have ample genetic counselling done by trained individuals. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, for uh, anyone who is planning to do that sort of uh, carrier screening to uh, consider uh, how they want to have the test done. Mm. 
All right. I also want to now bring in this topic of a rare disease registry. Um, and I am going to ask this to both of you and maybe to you, Suki, first. Why is it important that we have a rare disease registry? Because people have been calling what for one for years, right? And how would this tie into having a expanded newborn screening program? Uh, so I think the data is really, really important because without... Um, relevant local data, uh, we can't really plan very much on how best to serve the rare disease population. And I'm sure Prof Tong will expand more on that, on the use of the registry data. Um, but I'm going to talk a little bit on some of the concerns that comes with the registry. Mm -hmm. Again, because our country hasn't got very good infrastructure for protection against discrimination. So that has to go hand in hand with any creation of a registry. You know, how do we um, make sure that the information remains um, confidential and not used to discriminate against anyone in particular? Mm. Prof Tong, um, what are your concerns and also why do you and why would you think a registry is necessary? Well, from the uh, doctors and healthcare planners, uh, clinicians and so on, uh, we work on the basis of facts and data. Mm -hmm. So a rare disease registry is a very crucial uh, part of this uh, management of uh, rare conditions because we need accurate information. And we need the information not just from uh, the major hospitals in the Klang Valley, but we need it from the population uh, from the whole country, including, you know, uh, Sabah and Sarawak, for example, we, which may have a different disease profile uh, due to the different ethnic groups. So the registry is really a very important uh, first step, actually, uh, to collect all the data on this but particularly in terms of the outcome uh, of this condition and also uh, what has happened to these patients uh, following treatment. So all this, uh, and this is something that is already been done for cancer. Mm -hmm. So you see in Malaysia, we have a cancer registry, which uh, produce very good data and often quoted by health authorities and so on. Mm -hmm. And we can see that uh, a lot of funding uh, provided for the care of uh, patients with cancer. There's a lot of awareness. And we do not see, uh, and we cannot understand why it is not done for rare diseases. Because some cancers are also quite rare. Uh, they're even uh, more rare than some of the rare conditions that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And therefore, uh, you know, all these are, are not, uh, we are not re reinventing the wheel. Okay, they all has been in existence, precedents have been set. So we are arguing the fact that, you know, all these are nothing new. We just need to get this done because all these patients with rare conditions have not achieved that equity, equity in healthcare which they deserve. And we are just trying to um, put them on equal footing with other conditions in terms of funding from uh, all the authorities because they deserve uh, the care that which they, they need so badly. Mm. Good. Um, a couple more questions before we close off this conversation. Um, Prof, I want to ask you, earlier you mentioned all the different structures and systems that need to be in place when we want to expand newborn screening, right? But should we wait until everything is perfectly in place to introduce or do you think you know we just need to go for it? 
I always go for go for it, you know, because <laughs> the, the things will never be hundred percent ready in any instance anyway. So if if we were to wait for it, as what we have done over the last fifteen years, uh, this is where we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, only, you know, and and the sad thing is, it's it's there. It's the 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 equipment is there. The expertise are there. You know, the treatment is there. Uh, everything is ready. It's just a matter of uh, having the higher authority to put all these things together, to organize themselves, and to make it a purposeful decision. That means that you need to have uh, uh, leadership in this uh, matter. So I would say that, you know, if we were to start, let's start on a small uh, region, for example, you can break down the country into maybe maybe the south, north, central, uh, maybe the west coast, mm-hmm. and then maybe East Malaysia. So each of these region can have their own center, and we are always talking about hub and spoke uh, concept. That means with this region, we can train up all the expertise mm-hmm. uh, that we need. We provide them with funding. They can do the training and capacity building. All right, and they can slowly reach out to the different peripheries over time. So if you set a, a gun chart, for example, a timeline, uh, it can be done progressively and roll it out uh, as we learn all the uh, lessons of new expanded newborn screening. Um, and I'm sure there will be many lessons to be learned. But eventually, if other countries have done it, like the Philippines, where they have, uh, I believe they have more than 13,000 islands, you know, and they are able to roll out an expanded newborn screening in the Philippines, typhoon or not, right? Why is that Malaysia uh, with a fewer number of islands, right? Mm-hmm. And a fewer number of population can't do this. It, it sort of bewilders me, okay? And I feel that, you know, if we have failed uh, our generation of children, uh, then we have not done our job. And I just want to say this because 29th of February, mm-hmm. Uh, is rare disease day. Mm-hmm. And I think there's none other better day than for all your listeners to know this because we need everyone to come up and support this and to support all the babies that are yet to be born in our country that deserve something better from us. We need to do this because we have not been doing our job and I personally felt I have not done my job because we still see lots of patients suffering from this uh, rare conditions, genetic conditions that are perfectly amenable to treatment, to prevention, just like any other disease. We are not setting any new precedents. We are not doing anything new. We are just asking for equity of health care and that means leaving no one behind. Mm. And Suki, do you think Malaysians are ready? Yes, absolutely. Malaysians are, you know, I think Malaysians are very open to... Um, uh, information in a sense. So I think a lot of uh, people in the public, when given information, will absorb it. And I think um, advocacy from the public is very important from families, from patients. And we, we have to do better. Like mm-hmm. Prof says, you know, from the healthcare perspective, we can put um, all of the folks in the space, but we need to have, um, you know, the powers to be to carry it out and as 
a country from all aspects, whether we are from uh, healthcare provider perspective or like you, um, you know, from uh, uh, the media side, you know, to be able to advocate as well together with the patients. I think we we, we, we are ready to get the messages across. We're not reinventing the wheel, uh, but we really want to make sure that this is something definitely the population deserves. Mm. All right. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. That was consultant paediatrician and clinical geneticist Professor Dr. Tong Miao Kiong and genetic counsellor Yun Suki on the need for expanded newborn screening for rare diseases in Malaysia. I'm Lim Suen and this has been Health and Living BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.